Year Polygamy listeners. This is your host, Lindsay Hanson Park of the Year of Polygamy podcast, asking you to make a donation or a contribution to the Year of Polygamy podcast. Your contribution goes to the continued success of this podcast. It's helpful personally to my research and to all the projects that we do. So consider a donation to yearofpolygamy.com. Also, while you're at it, if you want to meet me and other people from this podcast, join us at Sunstone this summer, July 26th through the 29th at the University of Utah. We're going to have lots of guests who have been on the podcast, including Roy Jeffs, who's going to speak about his experience growing up at FLDS. We have Denver Snuffer and many other people from different Mormon groups. So come join other diverse Mormons and register at sunstone.org. and welcome back to another episode of the Year of Polygamy podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay. Tonight, I'm interviewing someone who I don't think I've ever had on the podcast, and it's kind of a strange fit for this podcast, Year of Polygamy, because we usually talk about the principle of plural marriage. Now, we're going to do that tonight, but we're going to be talking to someone who has an association uh, with a belief system that actually does not believe in polygamy, if I'm understanding it correctly. And what we're going to do is we're going to approach this interview as sort of a 101 to, I don't have a better word for it yet, but maybe I will after this interview, the Denver Snuffer Movement or the Snufferite Movement or the Remnant Movement. And I have someone who's been very generous uh, who is going to help walk us through and sort of explain this to us, Adrian Larson. Can you say hello, Adrian? Hi, Lindsay. Thanks for having me on. I'm uh, excited to chat with you. Great. So Adrian, um, let's just get a little bit of information background on you first, and then we're going to sort of jump into what the Denver Snuffer movement is. And then we're going to talk about how it intersects with this topic of polygamy in just a minute. But tell us about yourself. Um, sure. Uh, I, I, I really, uh, I don't suppose I consider myself particularly interesting. Um, my LDS background, I was uh, born and raised active LDS uh, from Pioneer Stock. Um, born and raised in St. Louis, Missouri. And um, we were, you know, the, the typical faithful, kind of uber faithful Mormon family. Uh, I remember, for example, if we were ever on vacation uh, for over a Sunday, then my dad would insist that we find an LDS church and stop and go to our meetings uh, and then continue driving wherever we were trying to go. Um, and so uh, we that's uh, that's kind of where I come from, and I'll be glad to you know answer whatever specifics you'd like to know there. Okay, so yeah, typical Mormon upbringing in the mission field, as us arrogant Utah Mormons would say. Did you do the whole Mormon pedigree? Do you have pioneer stock? Did you go on LDS mission? Any of that? Yeah, yeah, pioneer stock. Um, my my. Dad's dad actually joined the church in Copenhagen, Denmark as a young man and emigrated to Salt Lake City. And then on you know, the rest of my relatives, I'll go back to Nauvoo and, and before. And um, I, uh, yeah, served a mission in North Carolina, always active in the church, always a full tithe payer, did my home teaching, checked all the boxes. And my whole family was kind of that way. There were, there were six kids in my uh, family growing up and all six served missions all six uh, married in the temple. I believe uh, five went to BYU. Uh, you just, you couldn't get more Mormon than that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, now we're really going to test it. Do you like funeral potatoes? 
Uh, you know, the, the, the delicious combination of grease and cheese does something for the soul, doesn't it? All right. You're ours, brother. We claim you. Okay. So, um, are you comfortable saying where, what area you live now? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I live in uh, a suburb of Boise, Idaho called Meridian. And, um, yeah, I think that's, I, I, I blog publicly. And so, uh, you know, at least that, that kind of information is, is out there available. Okay. And we'll make sure that we link to your blog and everything like that. So for listeners just tuning in for the first time, this podcast covers the history of Mormon polygamy from the very beginning until, you know, the contemporary practice today, we interview polygamists. Let's just clear this up. You are not a polygamist. That is correct. I am not a polygamist. Okay. So lest there be any confusion, you're not a polygamist. What interests me about you and other Mormons like you is you're part of something that I would consider knowing the long lens of this Mormon history. Again, I'm, I don't have the terminology, but it seems like it's a new movement, a new uh, breakoff sect that is forming and studying the history of it. It's like watching it in real time and it's really fascinating to me. So I'm interested in that part. And then later on, I want to talk about polygamy because there's some controversies and misconceptions about belief systems. And so I want to talk about that. But first of all, I want you, if you are comfortable, tell us who Denver Snuffer is and how does this whole thing get started? Okay, sure. I'll, I'll start with just one caveat that I think is really important to get out there in front of everyone. And that is, I don't speak for Denver Snuffer. I'm by no means any kind of a spokesman for him or for this so-called movement or anything like that. So what I can offer is my own experience and my own opinion, but I just want to make it clear that if you want to know what Denver speaks or thinks or teaches, uh, he's written a couple million words out there and there's, there's plenty available from him to let him speak for himself. So that's kind of my opening caveat, if that's all right. Yeah, that's great. And thank you for that. Denver's a great guy. He and I work together a little bit. He's coming to Sunstone this summer at the end of July. So if you want to see him, you can come see him speak uh, July 26th through the 29th at the University of Utah. And um, we might have Denver on later. But yeah, I'm really interested in, like Denver is interesting to me and I like him a lot. But I'm really interested in someone who is inspired by his words. So this is perfect. So uh, where would you like me to start? I can, you know, give a little bit of a, I guess, a biographical sketch about Denver and, and how this all got started. Uh, or I can talk more about me. What would you like, Lindsay? So first, just talk about Denver. Talk about the general sort of history. I know it's it's new and it's complicated, but just give us a 101. Who is Denver Snuffer? Uh, what is a snufferite? <laughs> okay, great question. So, um, Denver Snuffer, uh, yes, that's his real name, as, as far as I know, that's what he said. And he was a church member, joined at age 19 as a convert. Um, I'm told he was born and raised in Mountain Home, Idaho, or at least raised, I don't know where he was born, but raised in Mountain Home, Idaho, which is uh, happens to be about no, not quite an hour from where I currently live but our paths never crossed until much later in life. He was a uh, faithful member of the church, uh, living in Utah, raising a family. And um, he took the gospel really seriously to the point that he studied an awful lot and tried to practice it and live it. And um, eventually uh, found himself entertaining angels and ultimately in, in the presence of the Savior 
uh, meeting the Lord face to face. And after that experience, he was asked by the Lord to write a book, kind of a how-to book, a guidebook for those who would be interested in having the same experience. And uh, so that first book was called The Second Comforter, Conversing with the Lord Through the Veil. And uh, that was uh, the first book of his that I read. And that's how I became familiar with Denver Snuffer. And that was kind of my starting point for all this. So let me ask you some questions about that. Did you, so he wrote this book when he was an active LDS member, correct? Yes. And the story goes, and tell me if I'm getting this wrong, um, the temple was involved. Was he in the temple when he had this experience? Or was he a temple worker? I can't remember. Uh, no, to the best of my knowledge, not a temple worker and not in the temple. But again, these would probably be be better directed to him as far as that goes. He's never he's never mentioned it, the need for uh, for the temple to be involved in having an experience like this. Oh, interesting. Okay, yeah, that clears up a misconception right out out the gate. So I appreciate that. Another question that I have about this, and maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, but. What Denver seems to offer is something that we've talked a lot about in this podcast, which is as the church tries to move away from this practice of plural marriage and they, you know, have correlation and they have all these rules because they're still trying to fight this ghost of polygamy in their church, they really sort of clamp down on spiritual experiences, on personal revelation and authority. And it seems to me that Denver is offering a way to give the gospel, if you will, back to the people, Um, spiritual experiences, divine connection, um, some of those early things that earlier saints would have had access to, uh, Denver is offering that, almost a democratization of um, spirituality. Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah. In fact, I think that's very astute to say. If I could, uh, you know, elaborate just a bit on that, it seems that the current practice or the current teaching of the LDS Church is designed around you being faithful to the church and its leaders. Uh, do what you're told, check all the boxes, keep all the rules, get the ordinances, and you're good. And you know, then just do this thing called enduring to the end, <laughs> whatever that means. And uh, and then you know, you're all set for the afterlife. You're golden. And what, uh, what Denver's teachings um, lead to is kind of the opposite of that, that it's, this is a divine connection between you and God who wants to know you, who wants to be one with you, and who wants to have a personal relationship with you that is uh, regardless of any man, any president, prophet, pope, uh, regardless of the church, uh, this is personal between you and God and available to anyone who wants to seek it. Yeah. And I feel like that's really compelling, especially in Mormonism, where at least, you know, my generation, we grow up as, you know, being told how special we are. We have the patriarchal blessing. My generation was one of the generations that were told we were, you know, generals in heaven. And so you have all of this like fantastic pumping up and then you grow up and you're kind of like, that's it. <laughs> now what? What do I do? And, you know, for my part, you know, I'm now a mother married in the temple. I'm changing diapers a lot. I'm running the house and it just feels sort of empty. And I think it speaks to a lot of people. And the other interesting thing here is this is very much in line with Mormon fundamentalists. So it's hard for me to not call Denver Snuffer a fundamentalist movement. Mormon fundamentalism has been so tied in with polygamy. And yet, 
if we look at the whole restoration tradition, there are all kinds of breakoff groups that practice Mormon fundamentals, but not necessarily plural marriage. And I guess right right off the bat, what would be a comfortable way to call this phenomenon? Is it a movement? Is it a breakoff group? Is it a church? Is it a belief system? What's the best way to describe it? You know, uh, I'm comfortable with movement. I think that captures it as well as anything. It's certainly not a church, uh, and it's certainly not anything that you could have membership in. There's no organization. There's no hierarchy. There's nothing incorporated. You don't become a member of this thing. So a movement is, you know, to me that conveys its grassroots. It's people that are interested and that embrace these sorts of teachings, uh, associating with each other and pursuing these teachings voluntarily. Okay, yeah, and I want to get into that because there are some uh, counter-narratives out there to, to those things. But first, let's talk about you, what you found compelling, uh, your personal experience. And actually, before we do that, I want to get to that, but uh, will you explain how, how Denver and this movement is looked on by the institutional LDS church now? Yeah, yeah. Um, was, so as you're aware, Denver was excommunicated. And we can, you know, we can talk more about that if you'd like. Uh, and the LDS Church has taken taken steps that that demonstrate, first of all, that they're um, certainly aware and concerned about this. And and frankly, it seems that there's some fear. There are, you know, you you probably saw the the bubble slide thing that got leaked on Mormon leaks that that showed Denver Snuffer's name as one of the major. Uh, challenges that they feel they face, and and you know other other actions they've taken and steps they've taken show that um, they'd like to do all they can to minimize uh, any impact that that Denver Snuffer has, and they're certainly teaching people to avoid him, his teachings, this movement, uh, and and to stay away. Yes, and for my part, people send me stuff, and I've been sent documents um, by several sources from the church, you know, to different church leaders or stake leaders or even, you know, high higher up leaders, that's all I can say, about this movement. And it would seem that there is a lot of fear, this is a big concern, and that this movement is getting more traction than anything, unlike anything I've ever seen in my lifetime. We're talking thousands and thousands of people. And what is interesting about this, as, as people sort of hear Denver's beliefs, find them seductive or compelling. It's not like Mormon polygamy where you can go join, you know, some independent group and then take on a plural wife and try to hide it from your ward. It's a lot more mainstream. You can still attend your ward. In fact, I've been, you know, I go speak at different firesides and different um, group meetings and gatherings and it seems like there is always a quote-unquote snufferite, someone who follows this movement in the group now. It's it's taking hold of a lot of um, momentum. Is that fair to say? Yeah, and particularly uh, when you run in kind of the fringe circles, um, or at least the curious circles uh, in in Mormonism, then you're you're bound to find people who share this belief system. Absolutely. Um, and thanks for saying "quote unquote" snufferite. Uh, I'm putting it in quotes because, as you're probably aware, um, those who who kind of espouse these beliefs are not following Denver Snuffer by any means. In fact, he wouldn't call you a fool for following. He'd call you a damn fool for following him, <laughs> um, because he points solely uh, and and insistently 
at Christ and says, no, you follow Christ. If I can point the way to Christ, I'll point you to him, but do not follow me. Uh, and so snufferite it has become kind of a derogatory term used by those who disagree with those sorts of beliefs saying, oh, you're just you're just a snuffer worshiper. So it would be uh, along the lines of calling an LDS person a Monsonite, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and maybe, uh, yeah, sure, that's fair enough. Yeah. So again, this is hard because I, in doing this podcast, like, for example, the Peterson Group, which is uh, Christ Church Inc., uh, I've called them the Peterson Group as long as I could. And then when I met actual people from Christchurch Inc., they're like, yeah, you can call us that. We'll forgive you, but that's not who we are unless we can call you the Monson Group. So it's hard. It seems because LDS is the biggest kid on the block, we like to give these names to everyone else and yet not apply them to their so- to themselves. And as a practice, I'm trying to be respectful and identify the way that you want to identify. So if you catch me doing it, it's just bad habit. Call me out on it. Oh, no worries. That's I noticed you put it in quotes, which was entirely appropriate. Thank you. Yeah, so let's talk. I want to get into theology, belief systems, uh, resiliency, all that, all that stuff. But let's talk about you. How did you turn from this like typical LDS Mormon man to sort of coming out on your own in an independent way? Okay, well, I've always been uh, very interested in the gospel, uh, at, you know, studying, digging. Um, I've been my most frequent calling in the church. In fact, almost exclusively, I've held teaching callings throughout all my years in the LDS church. And um, that's what I loved. I love the scriptures. I love digging into things. And so, um, when uh, through a, through a series of events, um, one day that book, the Second Comforter, conversing with the Lord through the veil, it showed up in my uh, Amazon. It said, "Oh, you know, you may also like right." And and I saw that that title, and it just really struck me right then. It was it was kind of a a, a strange moment when I saw the title and and recognized it is the best way to put it. That sounds cheesy, but there's that book was, was the feeling. And so, um, I put it in my shopping cart, uh, ordered it. And then when I read, when I got there and I read what the topic was, I put it on the shelf for six months because I was afraid to read it. Um, okay. So let me stop you there. Cause that's interesting from what I've heard, usually, at least in the documents that I've seen, it's been more of these since at when Denver was a faithful member it was considered sort of this sacred experience. And and for those, we have a lot of non-Mormon listeners. So for non-Mormon listeners, at least in the LDS church, since we have correlation, we have all of these things that sort of discourage spiritual experiences in public, we're not really allowed to talk about it. It's seen as too sacred to talk about. So you don't talk about it um, with your neighbors usually or your friends unless you're in a very spiritual setting. And so as was the case with this Denver's, you know, seeing Jesus Christ, that's one of the most sacred experiences you could have as a human being. And so the book was considered sacred, sort of a higher law. And the documents that I saw looked like even stake presidents were involved in giving this book out to members who had questions. And it was seen as a very faith promoting book. It wasn't seen as something wicked or evil, but you felt a little bit, I don't know, tempted by it. (laughs) I think you're, what you said is exactly right. That is it okay to read this? This, is this too sacred to talk about? 
and I was I was concerned that I would offend God by by delving into this uh, idea that He had shared, and so I, I just kind of I just kind of set it aside for about six months, and then, as occasion permitted, I got curious and started reading the book. And I ended up uh, for about a week up until two or three in the morning every night because I could not put it down. It was really like water in the desert to, to read that, that we can talk about these things and that, that it is possible to know the Lord and that he wants desperately to know us and that there's a path you can follow that leads to that. It was uh, for me just remarkable and it filled my soul. It was the best thing, the most enlightening thing I had read in a long, long time. So let's get honest about something here, because I think that this is a real issue that's facing the LDS church right now. And, I, and I'm seeing this, you know, so right now it's uh, June 2017, and there's the big scandal right now is there's a testimony of a 12-year-old girl who came out to her congregation, and that's floating online. And I'm hearing stories of different wards have decided that they're going to clamp down on testimony meeting and make them even more strict and they're not allowed to say certain things. And I understand this need for, you know, LDS leaders to sort of control the message, but I feel like they lost control of the message a long time ago with the internet. And so as they clamp down, the people who are hungry for divine connection, for spiritual nourishment, aren't being fed. And it seems like because of this, as the church is becoming, you know, a harder place to express your spirituality, even if it's strange or unusual or off the beaten path, they're going to find it elsewhere. Do you feel like that's fair to say? Yeah, absolutely right, Lindsay. That's, that's, you, you hit the nail on the head. Those who hunger and thirst will seek to satisfy their cravings. And if the church won't provide it and actually tells you, it discourages you from even seeking then you'll just look elsewhere. And that can't be controlled. The information flows freely now. So talk to me about your hunger. You said it was water in the desert. So why, why was it a desert? I guess the, it's, it, it comes back to what you said, that the church controls and correlates what's taught. And there's a certain approved list of topics. And we have these lesson manuals that are rather stale and basic and repetitive and that's, you know, that's what you're fed. Uh, you can go to church hungry every Sunday, so to speak, and come away uh, still hungry because it's the same thing you've heard for the umpteenth time and there's nothing new. And it's not giving you a connection to God. It's essentially promoting, if anything, faithfulness to the church and follow the prophet. So I hungered because I, I guess I always had an inborn sense that there was more than this. I, I had several spiritual experiences, if you want to call, call them that, throughout my, my youth and, uh, and growing up, and I, I wanted that connection with God. And I began to realize that although the LDS Church has its purposes, uh, connecting you to God wasn't one of them. So this makes perfect sense and is in line with sort of the arc of this podcast, which as we study uh, the history of polygamy, we see that, in my opinion, that the church has 
been far more afraid of Mormon fundamentalists than it has been of Mormon liberals or anything like that, or critics even. All the policies, in my opinion, have seemed to be designed against, up until recently, against people joining fundamentalist movements. And the irony in that is as they're clamping down to stop fundamentalism, this new movement, this remnant movement springs out of it anyway. And it's it's a really interesting, it's almost counterintuitive um, what they are doing. I understand it. I just think it's interesting to see that it's not having the effect that I think that it was meant to have. Yeah, yeah, that that makes perfect sense. And when you use fundamentalists, uh, you know, that that term in with the way you're using it, which is returning to the fundamentals, uh, that's exactly right. Um, a, a word I like to use is restorationists, uh, those who are trying to return to what Joseph was attempting to restore, because the LDS church has wandered far afield from what Joseph was doing and teaching. Yes, I think I think the history absolutely uh, backs that up. I think that there's a lot of evidence to support that. In fact, you know, different scholars have wrestled with the question, would Joseph Smith recognize the church today? And of course, no one could ever answer that, but it's sort of a fun thought experiment. And I definitely think that when you follow all these different uh, branches out of Mormonism, everyone sort of picks the things that resonate the most with them from Joseph's theology. And to me, from my perspective with the history, the LDS church was very much a Brighamite church. I think that that's an apt term for us. Brigham Young really influenced the trajectory of what we know as Mormonism. And it seems to me, and, tell, and let's get into this now, how does generally speaking, or maybe just personally speaking, how do you feel about Brigham Young? Boy, uh, you're absolutely right. It is a Brighamite church. He was president of the church for twice as long as Joseph Smith ever was. And he also, of course, you know, led the westward, westward migration into an insular, isolated, uh, autocratic kingdom that he was the absolute monarch of. And so he stamped his imprint upon the church in a far greater way than Joseph ever did. Um, how do I feel about Brigham? I feel gratitude for what Brigham was able to accomplish in holding it together to the degree it was held together and in preserving it to the degree it was preserved. I never would have discovered the Book of Mormon, for example, if it hadn't been for Brigham Young uh, managing to hold things together. Uh, and so I'm grateful for that. That said, I, I don't regard Brigham Young as anything close to a prophet, and, and neither did he, frankly. Uh, and I don't regard Brigham Young as necessarily um, inspired or always doing God's will. Uh, I think he was very shrewd. I think he was, um, in many ways, a very effective leader to do what needed to be done. But I think that's very different than trying to say that this man was uh, God's own um, mouthpiece. Yeah, and that brings up some interesting tensions because... Joseph Smith, I think, you know, the historical record would make an argument for, went sort of back and forth on power. Now, we know power is seductive. Joseph Smith even talks about it himself. And at times, I think that Joseph was really um, equitable. And at other times, I think he feared losing control of this, th this movement. And at the time, it was absolutely a movement. Brigham Young seemed to handle that one differently. He 
took absolute control. His word was God. But I think you're right. I don't think he saw himself as prophetic as far as revelations go. He tried it out a little bit. He had some, you know, the Adam God doctrine. He tried to incorporate some of that, but that really wasn't his strength. His strength was organization, leadership, and running a frontier uh, with an iron fist. And like you, I have gratitude for it. Where do you think the LDS church sort of goes wrong in taking Joseph's more fluid approach to leadership and spirituality? And then, you know, even in the early frontier period, we do have people speaking in tongues and having these spiritual experiences. But in Brigham's leadership, it fades away um, by, by his death. Where do you think that the church goes wrong, if you can say it that way? Boy, that's the, that's the golden question. Um, certainly, during Joseph's lifetime, there was a lot going wrong. Uh, Joseph was always a target. There were all sorts of things directed at him. Uh, you, you, know, you look at the Kirtland period and, and the cries of fallen prophet, fallen prophet, and, and the apostasy that went on there. You look at the Missouri period, the Nauvoo period, there were, frankly, some of the biggest enemies to Mormonism were the, the members of the church at times. Uh, and then once you've got Brigham in control and you got you get moving across the plains and so on, Brigham very rapidly felt at ease freelancing, changing things, uh, molding things in the image that he needed to see. And, you know, much of that was, like you said, it was practical. It had to be done or he felt it had to be done that way to hold things together because how else are you going to effectively rule? So he did what he felt needed to be done. But I think that it very clearly and fundamentally transformed the LDS church into something entirely different than what Joseph was attempting to establish. Now, Mormon fundamentalists, and I'm, I should say for the sake of this podcast, Mormon polygamist, well, no, fundamentalist would be a, a good term. They would generally hold that Brigham Young was inspired, and yet they see the church sort of, their term would be out of order. The church is out of order after the manifesto, and some felt felt like we were completely out of the order with the priesthood ban being lifted in 78. They consider the church to be a corporate church. They, they, they say that lovingly. They say, oh, Lindsay, you're a member of the corporate church. They see the LDS church as sort of keeping the lights on, printing the manuals, giving a basic primer to Mormonism, and they hold the higher law. Is that sort of in line with uh, this movement that you belong to? Well, I, I suppose parts of it are. Uh, yes, it's a corporate church. That's, that goes without saying. Multi, multi-billion dollar empire. Uh, the whole thing, top to bottom, is is frankly a business endeavor, selling a product called Mormonism to uh, whatever clientele they can get to buy it. Um, I don't. I think at this point, it's it's become almost um, counterproductive. In other words, I think the LDS Church has become a huge stumbling block to what. To, to those who might otherwise be interested in the doctrines, in what Joseph Smith was teaching, the Book of Mormon, these things might interest folks. And yet the LDS Church, I think, does, uh, does as much to turn people away uh, at this point as it does to attract. So it, it now has 
almost ceased to be a religion and it's more just a big corporation. And I think that this movement, the the remnant or restoration movement that you're talking about is evidence of that. When you have some of the most faithful and stalwart believers who are not being spiritually fed, do not find sanctuary in their chapels, do not feel like they are communing with God um, to their highest potential, they are finding other avenues for that. And I think it's always been so in Mormonism because we have this weird, strange thing with authority, but it's certainly interesting now. So I want to talk about uh, general belief systems, but I want to circle back to something you said earlier. You said, you know, this is this movement is not a church. It's not a creed. So I have heard, I've met with people who said that I believe it was in the St. George meeting. So as a backup, uh, Denver Snuffer has held firesides or meetings in different locations, always to packed houses. When he comes to Sunstone, uh, we sell out every time. He, he just packs a room. I was told that at one of those meetings, he, has, he now has a first counselor and a second counsel, counselor, and they have articles of incorporation. And, you know, John DeLynn had mentioned that he's writing his own scripture and they're rewriting DNC 132. Do you want to speak to that, those rumors? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Uh, I'm qualified to speak on those rumors because I was there and uh, at least at St. George. And uh, no, there is there's absolutely zero truth to the idea of a first counselor, a second counselor, a hierarchy, callings, authority. All of that stuff is is very much um, LDS, but that has nothing to do with what's going on in this movement. Now, the scripture project, that's a different project entirely. And if, you, if you'd like, I'll, I'll just spend a minute telling you what's going on there. Yeah, that'd, that'd be, be great. Right? Yeah, that's great. Thanks. Okay. So in a nutshell, it's clear that the versions of the scriptures that we currently have, let's just call them the, you know, the, the most current LDS versions of scripture are, um, they've been changed in certain ways. They're incomplete. Uh, things have been removed, et cetera, over the years. And recognizing that there are various people in this restorationist movement who in the last few years have said, well, you know, wait a minute, I go look at the Joseph Smith papers project and I find things that are no longer in our scriptures, or I find things that have been changed and they become very interested in finding out what the original said. What did Joseph actually say? In some cases, the changes are quite drastic. Uh, and, and there have been, you know, for example, the lectures on faith were removed from the scriptures, you know, canonized scripture. They were just pulled out uh, by a committee in 1921. Um, other things, uh, you know, the 1835 Doctrine and Covenants saw people freelancing and writing things into the revelations and adding in their own uh, additions before it was published. And so, long story short, various people have become interested in getting back to the original, even the Book of Mormon has been changed fundamentally. And uh, so people are interested in getting back to the original. And so various people have undertaken their own projects in various ways to try to get the earliest extant manuscript, for example, of each revelation, or uh, going back as far as we can in the Book of Mormon manuscript. Well, various people worked on this for quite some time. Uh, oddly enough, two different groups that had been working com completely independently of Denver Snuffer. These were just people who wanted accurate scriptures. Um, within a week of each other, they both announced, hey, you know, we've put together 
this uh, this set of PDFs, for example, where we've gone to the earliest known manuscripts. And um, both of them kind of got together along with some other people that had been working on this. And uh, they got together with Denver and they essentially said, yeah, let's, let's publish uh, a set of scriptures that is as faithful and complete as possible to the originals, including the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible, which has never yet been published in its fullness. And so that's what's been going on. It wasn't instigated by Denver at all. In fact, both groups that started this said they were done with their work before Denver ever even got involved. And then when they got together and started looking at what each other had done, they found more questions and it it evolved into the project that's currently underway and will hopefully be finished this year. Okay, yeah, that's really helpful. And it's kind of exciting to me because this does sort of confirm my belief that this movement is in line with Mormon fundamentalism. Now, I say that with a caveat because people that aren't familiar with this podcast or the term might think that that's a negative connotation. That term has been scandalized and villainized for a long time and associated with polygamy. Anyone that knows me knows that it's a term of affection. I seem to have a lot, uh, you know, in doing this work and doing this history, I have a lot of affection for different uh, fundamentalist groups. And in fact, I think that many of them know their history far better than the LDS church. This seems in line, I mean, your, what you just said is very much in line with other fundamentalist thinkers like Joseph Musser, who saw, who in his day saw the DNC being changed and the article, the lectures on faith being removed and all of these things. These leaders saw this and they thought, wait a minute, guys, these were Joseph Smith's words. These were important parts of our theology and our doctrine. Um, who are we to remove them? They're an important part of my faith. And so it's kind of exciting to me to see this movement happening. Uh, tell us some some fundamental beliefs, if you can. Uh, I know it's not a cohesive religion, but is are there certain widely held beliefs that are universal amongst the group? Yeah, yeah, there are. And I'm glad you asked it in the way you did, because one of the fundamental beliefs is that you're free to believe what you want to believe. There is no creed you have to subscribe to to be considered a restorationist or remnant or whatever you want to call yourself. But in general, uh, the folks that are following this path believe um, Joseph Smith was a prophet, of course. Uh, the, The Book of Mormon and the other scriptures that came through him are indeed scripture. And the doctrine of Christ, which Christ himself teaches in 3 Nephi 11, it's the very first thing that he teaches when he comes to Bountiful, and it's, it's also amplified on in other places in the Book of Mormon, notably uh, 2 Nephi uh, 30 and 31. Um, it's the doctrine of Christ is uh, one of, I guess, the, the, the fundamental beliefs of people that follow this movement, that you, you believe and obey this thing that Christ called his doctrine and his only doctrine. He, he added quite emphatically. And so that's, that's one thing that I think you would find in common. And then the other thing you'd find in common is a huge independent streak, meaning a lot of the folks, in fact, almost everybody at this point is um, former LDS Mormons. There are, of course, a smattering of other backgrounds, but those who have gotten, gotten here through LDS Mormonism 
generally arrive pretty battered. The folks like, well, myself, I've been excommunicated. There are many, many others who are excommunicated merely for believing this way. Um, and then there are those who who leave uh, the church without being excommunicated, but all, all of them are in some way or another refugees from LDS Mormonism. And they don't take kindly to the notion of being told what to do. And so you'll find a lot of independent thinkers, something that you said earlier, you'll find that these are, these are stalwart, faithful people. Many of these folks were, you know, the, the backbone of their ward, holding down all the callings and doing all the things and, and never in a million years thought they would be in the position they're now in. I never thought I was going to be an excommunicated Mormon. <laughs> That's the furthest thing from my mind. And, and yet here I am. So this is really fascinating because this speaks to one of the tensions that I think faces Mormonism and has faced Mormonism since Brigham Young, actually since Joseph Smith died, which is authority. Now, I think the thing that would uh, separate you from fundamentalists, uh, traditional fundamentalists, is this lack of authority. But there is a whole movement of independent Mormons. I call myself an independent Mormon. I actually borrowed that phrase from Mormon polygamists who do not associate with any group. Now, I'm not a polygamist, not interested in polygamy, but I love the term. It's like taking you know the gospel back, taking your identity back. And so it sounds very much in line with, with that. It's interesting to me, though, that regardless of what the tenets are, the belief systems, that it is still about authority, um, and it's about claiming our own authority. And Mormonism has this tension between personal revelation and you know church hierarchical authority. And you said you were excommunicated, and, and we can talk about that, because it seems that the thing that they might care about the most in the institutional LDS church is whose authority you will follow. Mm-hmm. And you, what you're, what I'm hearing you say, and tell me if this is right, is that you're saying, no, it's less about authority and it's more about communing with Christ. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. It's correct on both counts, Lindsay. What you said about the, the LDS church is absolutely true. And that really came down to it. That's in, in my well, my wife and I, we were, we were excommunicated together in one church court, which at the time had never been heard of, uh, but we were. And what it came down to was authority. Will you, you will do what you're told or you will be excommunicated. That's what it came down to. But to answer your other question, yes, in this, in this movement, the notion of authority really comes down to a very different understanding than you would have in the LDS church or in many of the the various offshoots of Mormonism, because most of them are hierarchical, that you have generally a guy at the top who holds something called keys that nobody can really define. uh, And maybe there's some other leaders that below that and, you know, this top down structure and everybody knows um, who they're to obey and who can tell them what to do. And, in this movement, it's entirely the opposite. Priesthood is viewed as only an obligation to serve. You're not in charge of anything if you hold priesthood. What you are is obligated to be a servant uh, if, if you hold priesthood. For example, priesthood it was never designed to be uh, the ability to compel others to do what you tell them to do. That's, that's an entirely 
distorted view of what priesthood even is. So yeah, the the idea of authority comes down to in this in this movement, uh, you do what you feel the Lord wants you to do. So let's talk about your excommunication for a minute. I want to know, walk us through that process. When did people around you start getting concerned? Because what's interesting is I have found few things. I've, you know, I've been looking at this movement and following it for a while now. I don't really follow or find things that are necessarily out of line with Mormon doctrine or theology, just like other Mormon fundamentalist groups. It seems that the issue comes with authority, like we just talked about. So your beliefs aren't rogue. They're not false doctrine. Um, You're not claiming to be a prophet. And as you, in your own words, Denver is not a new prophet. So why are people concerned? And walk us through who gets concerned, how this happens. Okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you about mine. I think that's as good of a case study as any, uh, and there's many, many, but what happened with me is as I began to what I call wake up uh, and began to study uh, on, a, on a whole new level and come to, come to more understanding, it became evident that the LDS church wasn't everything that I had ever thought it was. And, and believe me, I worshiped the church. I did. I I thought the church was the greatest thing ever. And so as it became clear that, no, actually the church is uh, a bunch of mortals doing their best to hold it together and making mistakes, it started to trouble me. And I started to, you know, study scripture uh, and my beliefs began to change a bit, but I was still faithful Latter-day Saint, paying the tithing and holding down the calling and sitting on the front row every Sunday. And nobody would have suspected a thing. I began, you know, talking with friends and family members. And at one point I was writing a letter to somebody who kind of wanted to argue some things that, that they disagreed with, primarily coming down to follow the prophet. And, uh, and I found myself writing a lengthy letter and kind of got the impression that really this ought to be a blog. And I never wanted a blog. I'm, I'm quite a private person. I don't like attention. But I, uh, so I started a blog while my wife was out of town and uh, started publishing these things. And some of what I published was, well, my first blog series, it was called uh, History, Hearsay, and Heresy. And it it talked about, it, it came down to the teachings of the Prophet's Manual, the Joseph Smith Manual, and a bunch of quotes that somebody threw at me, basically telling me I have to follow the brethren because Joseph Smith taught it. And so I started to dig into the sources of those quotes and found that they were all apocryphal that Joseph could never be proven to have said any of these things. And in fact, in, in all likelihood, most definitely didn't say any of these things. And yet they were in a church manual being taught as the absolute gospel and they were false. And so I started to blog about that. Give me an example of one of those. Um, the moon is populated by people who dress like Quakers and are nine feet tall. Did uh, they attri- attribute that to Joseph Smith? Oh yeah. Yeah. And in fact, uh, that's one that, you know, people, those who are inclined to mock Joseph Smith, they love laughing at that one. And yet that, that quote first appeared in the 1880s, you know, fully 40 years after Joseph died, written by an old man who said he once heard it. And then if you, if you study that out further, you find out that that old man actually believed the moon was inhabited. And he was trying to use Joseph Smith to bolster the stories he was telling. And they got printed in a, in, a, in a Reader's Digest kind of a magazine back then. 
Um, and uh, next thing you know, it's in our church manual. Well, that one wasn't, but there are lots of them. Like, um, stay with the majority of the 12 and the records of the church. They'll never go astray. Joseph oh, never see. said okay. it. Joseph yeah. never taught it. Okay, so you are finding so you're finding inconsistencies. You're you're struggling like most people who discover new information about the church. You're struggling to maintain your faith, but you're already sort of losing your faith in the narrative, the mainstream LDS narrative. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. And I'm looking at the manuals, uh, realizing that that they literally are teaching self-serving lies to promote the notion that you need to stay loyal to us. And so I was, I, I blogged about that and I wrote this series on this, on, on this blog. And what ended up happening is um, my wife uh, felt inclined to post on Facebook, a link to one of these particular blog posts that I'd written. And at this time, you know, a total of three people had ever read my blog. I didn't publicize it. I didn't tell folks but she put it on Facebook where, of course, a bunch of ward members are friends with her. And uh, it was one week later to the day that I got a call from the stake executive secretary. Um, no bishop contact ever, by the way. Um, it, was, it just went straight to the stake. The executive secretary invited me to come meet with the stake president. We had a total of three meetings and I was excommunicated. No, no, wait, okay. let me just ask really quick. At this point on your blog, are you talking about the second comforter? Are you talking about Denver Snuffer? Or is it just sort of your gripes about the church? Because I, I ask because I have been in the blogger knuckle, quote unquote, for 10 years, seen so many blogs. I mean, it's people that just go on and write the, you know, their personal experiences with the church. are There's hundreds and thousands of those, and those people aren't getting excommunicated. Right. Yeah, I don't know. I think the only thing that perhaps singled me out in this way was that I was telling the truth. You know, when you actually, when, when I actually showed the provenance of each of these quotes out of the Joseph Smith manual, for example, and that they were all false and yet they were being presented not only as truth, but as absolute doctrine that will save your soul. Uh, I said, you know, this is dangerous. We should stop. But so you weren't I think necessarily the talking about snuffer. Oh, never. No, I hadn't. No, not at all. I was just, I was only talking about some stuff in the manual and it was in the context of, we like to invent stories in our faith. We like to, we like to make things up and put words in leaders mouths and that's a bad habit. And the ultimate expression of that was uh, hastening the work. I, I had been teaching elders quorum, and I was tasked with teaching a lesson on hastening the work. And we all knew that the prophet told us it was time to hasten the work, and they changed the missionary age, and we were all excited. So I, I went to track down President Monson, where he taught about hastening the work. And I went through every word that had come out of his mouth, and he never said it. He never taught it. It didn't come from Thomas Monson. And yet, you have, you know, at the pinnacle of it, you were having four and five conference talks at a time in general conference mentioning our dear prophet has told us now is the time to hasten the work. I'm going, no, he didn't. That's not true. You're putting words in his mouth. You're inventing a narrative. And so I traced the history of that and the age change, which was not a revelation. It was a policy change. And I said, let's stop calling it a revelation because the church, the prophet never called it a revelation. So don't put words in his mouth. And furthermore, he never talked about hastening the work. So 
let's not claim he did. So I was just basically saying, uh, guys, you're getting carried away because you love you a good Mormon rumor, don't you? <laughs> we all do. Uh, the youth were generals in the war in heaven. I actually addressed that one. You mentioned it earlier. So long story short, they they didn't like the fact that I was saying the emperor has no clothes, that I was pointing out what was plainly obvious if you actually cared to do the research. And so the ultimatum I was given was, you take down the blog or we're going to excommunicate you. You mentioned the age change. So this was only a few years ago then. We, yeah, I was, uh, my wife and I were excommunicated in 2014. Okay. Yeah. That that's helpful to know too. Uh, okay. So you meet with the stake president. What, what did they ask you to do? What did they, what was conditional upon you staying, remaining a member of the LDS church? The conditions were that I take down the blog, surrender my recommend, and I can't have a calling, uh, can't participate at church. So, you know, no praying, no bearing testimony, no speaking up in class. Uh, but we'll let you stay a member if you attend and keep your mouth shut. Um, that was the condition. But ultimately, you know, above all, it was take down the blog. And my response was, I will absolutely change anything that's not true. Just show me what it is, point to my error, I will repent, I'll take it down, I'll change it, I'll write a retraction, just show me what I've written that's false. And it came, and that argument came back with, I'm the stake president, I have the keys, you take it down because I said to. I'm not going to argue with you about what's true and false, we're way beyond that. You're going to do what you're told. And so I, you know, I, I worshiped state presidents back then. And I thought, well, oh, surely this man is just misinformed. He's not understanding. And so I tried to teach from the scriptures and he wouldn't let me open the scriptures in his office, quite literally. Uh, he, same thing. Oh, we're, we're beyond that. Now I'm not going to talk scripture with you. Uh, it comes down to this. You're going to take down the blog. And he gave me two articles to read from uh, dialogue or something. I can't remember. Um, and he didn't want to discuss the articles. He just told me to read these articles. And each time we met, it was, are you going to resign or are we going to have to ex you? And, and each time we met, three times, he asked us to resign from the church. He even helpfully suggested another church we might wish to join that would be more in line with what we appeared to believe. What, what church was that? Uh, it was the Temple Lot folks, actually, Church of Christ Temple Lot. Oh, you're kidding me. That's fascinating. Yeah, he said, why don't you go join them? But each time he asked us to resign, each time I refused. And uh, and so then they, they held the church court and um, excommunicated us both. And at the, fi- the, the, the final, at the end of the church court, the very last thing he said, you know, right there in front of the high council and everything, he said, this is your last chance as your stake president. I'm asking you, will you take down your blog? And I said, no. And he said, why not? And I said, I quoted Acts 5, we ought to obey God rather than man. And he threw up his hands, essentially, you know, looked at the, looked at the high council, basically like, what can you do with a guy like this? And so they asked me. And that was maybe more and more than you wanted to know, but that's what happened. No, that's fantastic. And this is, this again is interesting. Now, fundamentalists who have, gone down similar, I would say adjacent, but differing uh, journeys, have experienced this as well, as have a lot of uh, 
for lack of a better term, progressive or liberal Mormons. This is a common struggle right now. The LDS leadership are sort of lost on this. So someone in their ward goes in, finds out conflicting history. The leaders can't even, they don't even know how to engage it. Uh, they, The evidence is there. They don't know what to do with it. I call it sort of this faith force field, which is you're talking. Uh, they see, they appear to be listening. Their head is nodding. Their ears are working, <laughs> but nothing is getting through. And um, you know, I tr- I trace this back to this like. I, I think everything has to do with polygamy in the church where we're trying to react and respond to it. But this is a common problem and it's so bizarre, I think, to if if just a regular chapel Mormon were to hear this and say, wait a minute, that doesn't happen. That can't happen. It must be sex stuff or it must be, you know, he must have um, committed a crime. There's more to the story. And yet this is such a common story. I have lost count of how many people I know who have had the similar engagement with their their leaders. The leaders just aren't equipped. And it sounds like, again, like what we've been talking about, this comes down to authority. You wouldn't take down your blog. It's not that your views were out of line or that they wanted to engage the discrepancies. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. In fact, flatly refused to engage the discrepancies at all or to tell me where I was wrong other than uh, do you believe Thomas S. Monson is a prophet, seer, and revelator? My response was, I don't know. He could be. I've never seen him prophesy, but he has the right to. And so if he does, I'll certainly take it to the Lord and ask if it's from the Lord and then he'll be a prophet. And, you know, that sort of answer, you know, using the literal definition of a prophet that doesn't sit well. And so you're right. I think, and and I really do, I I really do feel badly for my stake president because he made it clear that he was being pressured, that he had to get us out right away. And he wasn't equipped to deal with what he was forced to deal with. And so I think he was uh, trying to do the best he could and trying to stay loyal to the higher ups and so it came down the way it did. And I, I don't hold animosity or blame him for it. I get it in the church. You do what you're told. And he did what he was told. So you believe that this was coming from a higher uh, line of authority? That would certainly back up. I, I don't have documents on your particular case, but I do on individual cases. And I can say that from what I have seen, it goes very high up the chain. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. It, it does. That's, that's been made obvious in other cases. And there were things that he said that kind of made it clear that he had no choice in the matter. Okay. So um, this is interesting. It's completely opposite of my experience with my bishop who did engage, try to engage me on the topics and has remained my, my good friend. And he's now the stake president of this ward um, that I was in. I'm no longer in the ward because we moved, but he will reach out to me from time to time and he, you know, tries to engage. So that's also really interesting. It's such an inconsistent policy. I also blog. I blogged for Feminist Mormon Housewives for years and years and have never had this experience. So it's interesting to sort of see how those things shake out. Let's move on to the question that I want to talk about, which is polygamy. Mm-hmm. Now, the reason I got interested in this movement a couple of years ago was because I studied this topic. I wanted to see how movements began, and here's one happening all around me. 
And recently, I have been hearing rumors that uh, polygamists, uh, people in different fundamentalist groups, are really um, captured by this movement. And people are actually deconverting out of their fundamentalist groups and out of polygamous groups and following this movement. The, the rumors I heard were from the Pinesdale group in Montana, which is a breakoff from the AU. AUB. They were part of the AUB group, the Apostolic United Brethren. Um, and there's a lot of intermixing. And in some of the online uh, listservs that I'm on and boards, I've noticed some, you know, Ogden Kraut's family is on there and some AUB are on there and some Christ Church Inc. are on there. And there are all these different polygamists who are really getting involved in this, this snuffer movement, if you will. And so I put it out there. I put it on Facebook. I said, hey, I'm just hearing these rumors. Is this true? And I've talked to a few individuals and I, I'm kind of getting conflicting reports. So I did. Um, I was lucky enough to have lunch with um, a plural family and they said that uh, they felt really marginalized in this movement because at the St. George meeting, uh, Denver came out and said, absolutely no polygamy. We're going to rewrite the DNC 132. So... Talk to us about, set the record straight as far as you know, what are the beliefs on polygamy? Do you believe Joseph Smith practiced polygamy? And just for the record, I I absolutely believe that he did, um, but I respect if you don't. Talk to me about that. Where do you stand on the whole topic? Okay, so there were there were several questions in there, Lindsay. So let me just start with the big one. Let's start with Joseph, and then we'll kind of move forward from there and maybe get to the get to the questions about the current movement. But uh, with regard to Joseph, I think it's clear that Joseph was doing something, uh, that he was performing some sort of ceremonies, uh, sealings, if you will. The real question comes down to whether Joseph was considering these women his wives and having sex with them as, uh, you know, as, as a as Brigham Young did, for example, and as uh, various Mormon offshoots uh, that have practiced polygamy have, you know, made a polygamous wife as a wife in every sense of the word, or whether Joseph was up to something entirely different that then got changed into what became the current practice under Brigham Young. That's, to me, that's the real question. Okay, so I just I want to I want to just offer a different view for just a second. Um, sure. So I respect your viewpoint, but I will just say that. I don't believe the question is about sex and marriage. I actually believe it's about power. Um, and so this is a very Mormon idea to get obsessed with, like, did Joseph have sex? So just as a, just as like a note of disclosure to you, that is the position I'm coming at. So for my listeners, I'm going to let you tell your beliefs. I think my beliefs have been uh, well documented on this podcast so with that going forward, go ahead and, and give us your beliefs, and I'm going to um, let those stand. Does that sound okay? Yeah, that's more than fair, Lindsay, and I appreciate that. And I came into this knowing that this would probably be an area where we don't quite see eye to eye, and, uh, and that's totally fine with me, that we don't need to see eye to eye. I'll express what I've come to and um, you know, leave it to the listeners to take from it what they will. Great. I but, really appreciate that. Oh, no problem. So essentially, it comes down to this. If we throw away the Mormon lenses, looking backward through 187 years of history and backward through the lens of uh, post-manifesto polygamy, pre-manifesto polygamy, uh, 
throw away the lenses of um, Utah, Brigham Young, all of that, and we just get back to contemporary documents, things, evidence that was produced while Joseph Smith was actually alive. Um, what we find is it's, what I find is that it's very difficult to build an unequivocal case proving that Joseph was practicing polygamy. Uh, I know there was a lot said after his death and so on. And I'm saying if we, if we throw away the Mormon blinders and look, or not blinders, but lenses, and we look at what was actually contemporary, you find the list of contemporary uh, evidences to be very short and very equivocal. And then you take on top of that, Joseph's practices and the very well-documented fact that during his lifetime, he crusaded against polygamy. Um, he, he had people, um, for want of a better term, hunted down and brought before the high council and excommunicated. And he had all the John Bennett stuff to deal with. And he got dozens of people to sign affidavits and so on um, that he was not doing the things he was accused of. And so in order for Joseph to have actually been doing all the things that people today say he was, he had to have been an infernal liar. He had to have been absolutely, um, there, there's, there's no, there's no kind way to put it. He had to be lying his ass off to the people, to the Mormons, to the, to the faithful. And it's, I, I find it just perplexing that the LDS church who claims Joseph Smith as their founder uh, claims that, oh yeah, absolutely. He was doing this. He was marrying women. He had a bunch of wives um, because what they're really saying is that in all of his public statements, in all of his sermons, in all of his uh, behaviors, he was absolutely hypocritical and a liar. And so they're impugning the founding prophet by saying, yeah, this guy just blatantly, blatantly lied to us. And so then it makes me wonder, is that the acceptable definition of a prophet to the LDS church? Now, I know they've got a dog in the fight. It, it's, they've got to protect Brigham because without that, they lose the narrative that the prophet can't lead you astray because they descended from all that. I get that. But they've done it at the expense of throwing Joseph under the bus. Uh, and they've done it at the, in, in the face of very scant contemporary evidence. Uh, now, I know after Joseph died, there was all kinds of evidence produced, and, and you know, we can talk about all that. But really, I don't believe Joseph was a liar. I believe that he was performing sealings, uh, that, but that that did not make these women wives in the sense that we now call them wives. Many of them were married to other men. Many of them went on to marry other men, etc., so whatever it was, it certainly didn't have to do with making somebody a quote-unquote wife. So that's, that's a kind of an overview, I guess, of, of how I see the issue. Okay, so what I'm hearing is it's important for you to see Joseph as a figure of integrity. And so um, the way that you approach these stories and documents and um, accounts are in a way that would present him in, in a light where he wouldn't, in your words, be a liar. Um, and the LDS way, I would say, and I don't need to explain this to you, but I'll reiterate for listeners. Uh, we have this tradition that the LDS church, I believe, still practices, which is 
milk before meat, um, this idea of sacred, not secret, uh, outsiders won't necessarily understand. Now, outsiders would see it as a lie, but in Mormonism, there's this like really fuzzy history with, with that. And so what you're saying is that history, this tell the public one thing, do something privately, you reject that. You don't think that that was part of Joseph's tradition or, or character. Yeah, absolutely right. Now, clearly, and in the, the euphemism for this, as you know, is lying for the Lord, right? That's, yes. that's in Mormon history. And that's well documented that there was uh, certainly a great deal of willingness in throughout Mormon history to lie for the Lord during the times of uh, a persecution under the, you know, when the U.S. government was, was attempting to bring an end to polygamy in Utah, uh, then dissembling and hiding and lying uh, became a way of life became an art form. And that was a matter of survival. And I'm not pointing the finger and blaming. I'm simply saying that, yeah, lying for the Lord is a thing. I don't think that thing was uh, originated with Joseph. Um, And I would add to it that there are, it's almost in vogue today, especially among disaffected or former uh, LDS people or former other people uh, from the Mormon tradition to to pin it all on Joseph. And, and you see a lot of um, vitriol. Oh, he was a pedophile. Oh, he was just, you know, he was a sex fiend. Oh, and really what you need to understand and why I, I, the advice I would give to folks that are inclined to think those things are you could never prove it in a court of law because when you accuse someone of a crime, the standard is beyond a reasonable doubt. And when you look at the contemporary evidence brought against Joseph, there are massive doubts. The evidence is quite thin and a reasonable person could look at the evidence and say, well, now, wait a minute. Joseph is the only guy who never changed his story. I find him more credible than the witnesses who signed an affidavit on one hand saying, no, Joseph isn't doing this, isn't teaching it, never has. And then 30 years later are signing an affidavit saying, oh yeah, Joseph taught me this. Joseph was doing it okay, well, you've, you know, I find you unbelievable at this point (laughs) is how I kind of look at those sorts of stories. And then you look at the, in the circumstances, uh, the Temple Lock case, for example, and the, the investment people had to have in polygamy. And it's, it's quite easy to see how even honest people could get that wrong. And I'll, I'll go into more of the psychology of that for a minute, if you'd like, but that's, that's an overview that, yes, it's not that, I can't stand the thought that Joseph lied. That's not it. It's that I'm less inclined to accuse him based on thin evidence. If I'm going to call someone a liar or worse yet, a pedophile or an adulterer or a criminal, uh, I feel like I ought to have, I ought to reach a standard of evidence by which I would want God to judge me. And that is there better be some, some pretty solid non-controversial evidence or else I'm jumping to conclusions and that's not a good thing to do. Okay. And I'm certainly, I didn't bring you on to like debunk your faith or, you know, to, to unpack, you know, all the arguments about Joseph. Cause there certainly are many arguments out there about Joseph that people can talk about. So the bottom line for you and for others in this movement is Joseph Smith restored truth. He was inspired. Uh, would you use the term prophet? Was he a prophet of God? Absolutely. Okay. So he was a prophet. Do you consider anyone following him or, you know, preceding him to be prophets? 
So his successors as president of the church, no, I, I don't see any evidence that they were prophets or prophetic. We use those terms prophet, seer, and revelator, and I, didn't, I don't see evidence of any of those gifts. Okay, so you just contextualize it in the way that we talked about. They were doing their best, sort of keeping the lights on. Um, you know, we found Mormonism through their legacy, but uh, it's sort of been corrupted over time through Joseph. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So where where does Denver fit into this? What is If he's not a prophet, what is he? Well... Let's, I think we need to back up. I think you might have misheard something I said and construed it as me saying Denver's not a prophet. And I don't believe I said that. And I don't, I, I, I don't think that would be an accurate thing to say. Um, so with that caveat, where does Denver fit in? Joseph said something interesting, and I'm just going to paraphrase the quote. I don't have it in front of me, but uh, basically that it's always in the order of heaven that when people, that when people apostatize from the truth, God sends another dispensation into the world. Um, where does Denver fit in? I think that Denver fits in because the Lord has an agenda. He wants to complete his work. Joseph got it started, but never brought it anywhere close to completion. And after uh, a requisite amount of time had gone by, I think the Lord saw fit to start again. Um, and in this case, he's, he's starting again through the instrumentality of, of Denver Snuffer. Now, Denver is, I'll tell you, you know, he's, he's a pretty regular guy. <laughs> he does not, he doesn't like or want titles, honors, etc. He doesn't go around calling himself a prophet. But the definition of prophet, one who receives a message from God, who, who speaks that message to the world, as authorized by God, uh, then yeah, he fits that definition. And yes, that's, that's what he's doing. And so if you ask me what's going on, how the, how Denver fits in, I think that God is picking up where Joseph left off. And, uh, if there are people that are interested in recovering that and seeing it move forward, I think the opportunity is before us. Okay. Um, that's really helpful. Does that mean that Denver is the only one capable on this earth of doing so? Uh, of doing, well, of doing what exactly, I guess? Of, 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 of just bringing this movement forward, um, sort of inspiring people to claim their own uh, relationship with God. Well, Denver certainly has a role, but so do a lot of other people. And no role is more important than another one. Um, in other words, uh, you know, he's doing what God asks of him. Uh, others are doing what God asks of them. And each is an important piece of this. And so it's dependent on everybody. It's not dependent on Denver Snuffer alone. Uh, because, you know, he could preach to empty rooms. <laughs> like you said, he, uh, that wouldn't do any good though. People, people come in here, but then will they act? Will they, will they seek the Lord for themselves? And some are, and that's why things are moving forward. Okay. And I don't mean to like obsess on this point. It's just that, you know, I do come from an LDS background, a Mormon background. We're very obsessed with authority. My mind still, you know, looks at Mormon movements with authority. So it's unusual for me to talk to someone part of a movement that doesn't necessarily 
adhere to authority in the in the same Mormon way. So I'm just still trying to grasp and wrap my mind around it. I do, you know, I work with a lot of people that leave the church as well, and it seems that even the people that leave and lose their belief in God altogether build up new prophets and new leaders to follow. <coughs> so would you say that um, there is some, for lack of a better term, idol worship going on with Denver? Do people try to make him into something he's not? You know, that's a great question. And, and and don't feel bad about obsessing because this is the hardest thing, I think, for a lot of us to wrap our heads around. But to answer the question, um, he fights against that notion incessantly, the the idol worship notion, the idea that that he's anything special or that you that you ought to follow him. Uh, he he fights that. And, and he also he, he walks the talk, meaning he has not claimed any authority. He's not in charge of anything. He doesn't run an organization. He doesn't accept money. In fact, he's paid his own way for everything he's done, including, you know, he spent five figures to go out and give those, that series of 10 lectures he gave in, in 2013 and 2014 out of his own pocket. Um, so he's not getting money. He's not getting power. He's not gaining a following or, you know, a hierarchy. And, and people just can't wrap their head around that because they and the last five generations of their family, that's what religion is to them. <laughs> And you and I come out of that and, and it's, it's hard to comprehend, but yes, uh, those who, who have the, the tendency to want to idol worship are very much discouraged from doing so. Yeah. And I think that there is a certain distrust amongst Mormons in general, especially LDS Mormons. When they when you say like, he doesn't want the power, he doesn't want to get, he's not getting paid. Uh, that's the same narrative. We talk about our apostles. And then of course we find out that they are getting paid and so I think that there, you know, Denver might represent a bunch of sort of triggering obstacles for people because it is such a new way of thinking. And, you know, and I'm also thinking of my fundamentalist listeners who probably are just like their skin is crawling at your explanation of the history with Joseph and polygamy because their whole foundations are built on a different narrative. So it's really, it's really unique and set apart, if you will, in that way. So that's really interesting to me. Um, I've kept you long enough, but I do want to ask you a few more questions. Is that okay? Oh, yeah. I'm, I, I'm glad to go as long as you'd like, Lindsay. Really enjoying the conversation. Thank you. So uh, what about this idea that people who are plural families, I mean, you talked about you can believe whatever you want. You can be an individual. So I want to know how this movement, how welcoming it is to people who are polygamists. So I can't speak personally because I don't personally have polygamist friends. I would be glad to have polygamist friends. And Denver's made it clear, two things that he's made clear, and you can, you know, you can look up where he's spoken these things. It's a matter of record. Number one is that um, polygamy uh, needs to come to an end, that as it was practiced by Brigham, as it was practiced by the early LDS church, and as it's practiced now by the various offshoots, uh, was never God's intention, and that that, that that teaching and that practice should not continue forward. But at the same time, you don't break up families. You don't break up marriages. You certainly don't want to try to destroy what people have built their life on. And so they are absolutely welcome within the movement. They're absolutely invited 
the only caveat would be you need to understand that within the movement, what you'll find is people who believe that that was an error. And it's okay to make an error. We all make errors. It's time to change course. So I know that there are some who would find that incredibly uncomfortable and my heart goes out to them. Um, but at the same time, um, I'm not sure what else I could do personally to try to be more welcoming, except to say, uh, I would love you as a brother and as sisters and, and you are absolutely welcome, but please understand that I believe that the polygamy was an error that should stop. Okay. So, um, there are some lines in the sand or boundaries as far as belief systems go. What about LGBT members? You know, that's, that's a great question. And I don't, I I don't really feel qualified to speak to that other than to say, uh, Christ said that all are welcome to come unto him, black and white, bond and free, male and female. And he remembereth the heathen, you know, you, you can quote the scripture, all are welcome to come unto Christ. And I think that's the standard that we, that we all ought to adhere to. We can argue doctrine, we can argue practices and teachings, but everybody is welcome to come to Christ. So in some of these things that I've heard that the snuffer followers, snuffer movements, snufferites, whatever you want to call them, the remnant restoration followers are doing rebaptisms. Some people are doing sacrament. Would that be allowed for gay members or gay people or polygamists? Would they be excluded from that? I can't imagine that they would be excluded. Denver, you know, one of the things that he taught when he first introduced the notion that it's a new dispensation and part of the way that we um, participate in signal acceptance of what the Lord is now doing is by by being rebaptized, just as Christ did in Bountiful. First thing he taught was rebaptism. One of the things that Denver said is if someone comes to you desiring to follow Jesus Christ and be baptized, baptize them. Do not deny anyone who asks. I don't care if it's a Mormon apostle or a Catholic priest. I don't care if it's a polygamist. If somebody desires to come to Christ, then no one has the right to stand in their way. What authority, again, Mormon question, Mormon brain here. What That's okay. A, what authority are you baptizing with, if any? Uh, what, what you and I would call Aaronic priesthood. So is that for men only? As it currently stands, yes. Um, And that's a tantalizing uh, statement to leave hanging out there. Um, The way that that things are currently structured, that obligation to serve in that way is currently required of men only. That will, uh, I expect, change in the millennium. Followers of the remnant also believe... There's still a millennialist movement. You believe Christ is returning. Do you believe that you are taking any part in bringing that uh, forward, ushering in the second coming? Well, we certainly hope to be. Um, and I guess I should probably tell you the trajectory where where things are trying to head, you know, especially for your listeners that may not kind of have the background you and I have in observing this. But um, where this is headed is finishing what Joseph started. That would be um, building a temple that is an actual functioning temple, not where you're just going in and doing endless ordinances for the dead, but a temple that Christ will come to uh, 
and Christ will associate with his people within and where he can do what he wants to do. In, in, in section 124 of the Doctrine and Covenants, Christ said that, you know, the requirement to build the Nauvoo Temple was so that he could come and restore that which is lost unto you, or that which he hath taken away, even the fullness of the priesthood. So by, by the time section 124 came in 1842, um, or 1841, Christ point, point blank said uh, the church had lost the fullness of the priesthood and it wouldn't be restored until there was a suitable temple. And there's no record of that, that ever happening. Um, so our intent is that a suitable temple will be built. Um, we hope that Christ will accept it and come to it. And that's, that's what we expect to happen. The city of New Jerusalem will be founded and that it will ultimately become Zion and, uh, and usher in the Lord's return. And um, that's, that's where it's headed. And we're those of us in this movement, if you want to call it that, that's our expectation. I don't know if we'll be able to pull it off. I think chances of failure are much higher than chances of success. But we're uh, we're doing our best to follow what the Lord wants. Okay. Yeah, this is great. And forgive me. I really do apologize for this Mormon brain. <laughs> Just understand that this is, you know, the lens that I'm coming through. So how would this, where is this temple being built? How is it being funded? If it's a movement and not a church, I think I, I get how that could happen. But is someone called to do this, to be in charge of it? Is it a community built thing? Um, how does that work without sort of a hierarchical oversight? That's a great question, actually. And that's the same question that a lot of people are grappling with. Things have to happen in a certain order. And, uh, and I am going to answer that question, but let me, let me give some background briefly. First and foremost, the Lord needs to have a people that he will call his own, that he will recognize as his people uh, under his covenant. And um, recovering that covenant and being in a position to have that covenant with the Lord is the first step. And we hope that that will be coming very soon. Um, part, of, part of the unanticipated result of this scripture project is that showing a, a group of people who are that serious about recovering God's word and honoring it and lifting the curse that the Lord put the church under in 1831 saying, um, or 1832 saying that, uh, you know, that the entire church was suffering under a curse for taking lightly the things they'd received that's the first step toward the Lord offering more. And would it be revealed to a certain person like Denver or would it be revealed to the will of the people? How does that work? We expect that if the Lord is, is willing to accept the efforts of what's going on with the scriptures right now, uh, we expect that he will offer a covenant. We're holding a general conference in September and we hope that that will be the time at which the Lord offers the covenant to those who will accept it. Will that come through Denver? It's likely. I, I think it likely would. Um, but again, the Denver would be the first to tell you each person has an obligation to go to the Lord themselves and get a witness themselves. You don't, don't do anything as Denver says to. Um, but that would be the, the first step. And if, if we can receive the covenant, if we can become his covenant people, then we expect him to reveal where the temple should be built and, and move forward there. The, uh, you, you asked about funding. Uh, crowdfunding is what's happening. There are several efforts to gather, gather funds toward that time. And uh, other than that, in terms of 
Who's going to build it? What's it going to look like? Who's going to be in charge of the construction project? Where is it going to happen? We don't know any of those answers yet. All we know is that the Lord has made it clear that a temple will be required. So we're gathering funds against the day when he requires it. Okay, so it's sort of like a spirit of the saints gathering, putting their resources together to find a refuge in a place of worship. Yeah, I guess you could call it that. And, it, and you know, the pattern kind of holds, including the pattern that the Lord requires a temple in order to restore the fullness of what he wants to offer to humanity. So I have to say this, though. You say it's not a church, but it does sound awfully like a church. You've got general conference and rebaptisms and and uh, you have scriptures. And why why aren't you a church? Why are you afraid of it being a church? Well, it's interesting because Christ defined what he calls his church, and he calls his church those who will repent and come to him. That's it. But the problem with that word church is that we've overlaid it with so much baggage, especially those of us that come out of, you know, uh, LDS or some, some of the other Mormon uh, groups. We've overlaid that to mean a hierarchy, an organization, uh, the accumulation of wealth in a central location, the accumulation of authority under a central leadership. All of those things don't fit. And so if you want to use the Christ definition of church, meaning a group of believers that want to repent and come to Christ, then that fits very well. But um, the sorts of things that are happening, like you said, general conference, it's really strange, but Denver Snuffer didn't call a general conference. A group of believers, um, I happen to be associated with a group that's that's putting it on this time, but others have put it on. You mentioned St. George was the last one that was held. Uh, a group of believers says, you know what, we'd like to host a conference. Um, thanks to the wonders of the internet, that's easy to communicate. They plan it, they put it on, they provide it as a service, and anyone who's interested can come. So there's no central anything saying, oh, it's April 6th, we have to have a conference. Uh, it, it, every bit of it is, um, uh, what's the word, democratized, I think you used. I think that really fits. So all of these things that are happening they're all happening because people have stepped up and sacrificed and volunteered to make them happen. The scriptures project, the temple project, the conferences that happen, all of that is coming not from the top down, but from the bottom among equals. Okay. And do you have like a Sabbath, uh, weekly Sabbath worship service or anything like that? Yeah. You know, um, we have what we call fellowships. There are various groups, you know, that are geographically close where, you know, it might just be a family or two that gathers, or it might be a, a, a group of families that gather. And again, it's nobody's in charge, um, generally held in homes or in parks. Uh, so today's Sunday, you and I are speaking on a Sunday night. Uh, this morning, um, a family that's in our local fellowship here uh, hosted a sacrament meeting in their home. By sacrament meeting, throw away the LDS definition. It means we got together. We took the sacrament, we had a discussion, and, uh, and then we went to the park and let the kids play. Um, and that was our worship service for today, and it was held in someone's home by someone who volunteered to provide that service to those who wanted to come. And next week, someone else will do it. Okay, yeah, I think that sounds very nice and is in line with other, I would say, um, independent movements within the church. So that certainly makes sense to me. Okay, I have so many questions, but I'm going to ask only two more, and then I'm going to let you go back and be with your family. 
so, oh, that's just fine. Go ahead. The the one I wanted to ask uh, earlier when I was asking, you know, sort sort of these controversial questions, is how would most members view the race doctrine in the Book of Mormon? The you know the priesthood ban, the curse of Cain, the the priesthood and temple ban being lifted in seventy eight. How uh, is there any talk about how? these things affect people of color? Are there people of color following this movement? Good questions, all of them. Um, So I'll just kind of rapid fire them. Um, It's not an issue. Uh, I know that there are various groups, not in this movement, but I've heard of various groups that feel that, you know, the curse of Cain stands or whatever. Uh, It's not an issue. Um, I see, and I've, and I've, I'm not wording this well. Let me word it this way. Uh, Of course, priesthood is available to all worthy men and always should have been. Joseph Smith ordained men of African ancestry, and uh, that's a matter of record. Um, Brigham changed that. I think Brigham was in error. And so it's not even an issue. How would you contextualize, though, the Book of Mormon um, doctrine of the the Lamanite doctrine, we'll call it? You know, that's a mystery for me. And I've heard various ways that that could be interpreted. And I honestly have not come to a conclusion on that right now. And so I'm perfectly happy to say, well, gee, there's something that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. So I'm going to um, lay it aside until it does. Um, There aren't very many issues like that that I have to just kind of um, leave alone. But that's one of them for now that that doesn't make sense to me. I don't know why the Book of Mormon words it that way, and I hope that I will one day understand that. Okay, no, I appreciate you being honest on that. And so my final question is, the the idea, the stereotype about people in this movement is that everybody can see Christ or claims to have seen Christ. Do you want to speak on that? I know this is sort of sacred territory, so speak to what you're comfortable with. Oh, sure, Absolutely. So, as I mentioned, Denver's first book was about that process of ultimately having an audience with the Savior. And that is not only a fundamental belief of this movement, but that's a fundamental belief of the scriptures. If you look at the Book of Mormon, for example, and start on page one, you don't get eight verses into the book before you have Lehi in the presence of God having this experience. You just have to look, it's written right there. And over and over and over, you find that the Book of Mormon is the record of those who were redeemed from the fall and brought back into the presence of the Lord. In fact, that's the definition of being redeemed in uh, in Ether 3.13, when the brother of Jared is brought back into the Lord's presence. That's The Lord defines that as being redeemed. And so um, the Book of Mormon is the record of those who did that. It's, you know, it's repeated over and over. And the, the whole message of the gospel, the good news, if you will, of the gospel is that there is a deliverance from this fallen world that sin and death don't have to be permanent. We don't have to be prisoners of those things and that Christ is ready, willing, and able to redeem all who will come to him. And that can happen in this life. And we ought to be seeking for it to happen in this life. Absolutely. Now your other question about has everybody in this movement seen the savior? Uh, No, absolutely not. In fact, the vast majority have not. There are, there are some few who have, but that is not a required event to participate. It's something that we're all seeking. I see. Okay. Thank you for clearing that up. And, you know, thank you for being so lovely to answer all my pesky questions. 
Uh, is there anything else that you would like to leave listeners with? Of course, we're going to link to whatever you want um, you know, listeners to follow, maybe Denver's writings, your blog. But is there anything else you'd like us to know? Wow. Uh, that's a great question. There's only one thought I have, Lindsay, if, if you don't mind. Um, it just, you know, hearing, hearing myself say all these things in a very matter-of-fact way that's going to be broadcast on the internet, it's, it's just possible to say, well, that guy's a nut job. That all sounds crazy. That sounds just like, you know, every other X, Y, and Z split off that's made all kinds of claims. And, and we all know that you know, lots of those tend to end badly. On the other hand, there are some rather fundamental and important differences going on with, with what the Lord is currently undertaking. And as crazy as it might sound, what if those prophecies are actually meant to happen? Um, what if it's actually going on? I sometimes ask myself, if I had been alive in 1820 or in 1830, would I have recognized Joseph Smith as anything more than a crazy farm boy making bizarre claims and looking in his hat? Um, and the, frankly, the, the answer to that question is uh, the vast, vast, vast majority of the world dismissed him. And it's easy to dismiss this. Uh, but if you have an inkling that this is worth looking into, I would just invite you to look into it. Test the claims. Go to the Lord. Find out if he is, in fact, working again. Because as bizarre as it sounds, if it's true, it's the most important thing I could possibly say to the world. So take that for what it's worth. But uh, I hope that I hope that it at least causes people some thought. No, I think that's great. And I think that you have been very articulate. I think you've cleared up some misconceptions for me. Uh, it's kind of exciting for me, like I said, because I feel like I'm watching history in the making. And, you know, I'm very much of the Sunstone mind. This is, you know, of course, I work for Sunstone. And what we're trying to do there is our tagline is there's more than one way to Mormon. And Denver will be there. And I think that I saw that you're coming. So I'll get to I'll get to meet you. And so for me, you know, Mormonism is exciting precisely for this reason. So I just appreciate you coming on, um, coming on to a podcast on polygamy and talking, <laughs> talking about this. And again, you're not a polygamist. I'm not a polygamist. But there are some um, intersections here that I appreciate you discussing. Well, I just want to say thank you. You've been uh, an absolutely delightful conversation partner, and you've been very kind in in how you've dealt with uh, all these topics and very respectful. And uh, thank you so much for the opportunity to talk. Great. And uh, like I said, we're going to follow uh, this podcast episode at yearpolygamy.com for links. We're going to link to a lot of this stuff if you want to know more. And everyone, thanks for listening.
be sure to support Utah women making local music. If you like the music on this podcast, it comes from a band called Lady Murasaki. You can check them out at ladymurasaki.bandcamp.com.